Hello, and welcome to the Green Leads Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Rizzo. Today on the podcast, we have an awesome guest who is a real expert in sports nutrition. Angie Ash of Elite Nutrition is one of my favorite people to follow on Instagram. She always shares science-based information, and we had a really awesome chat today. But before I get into everything we talked about, I want to give you a brief reminder to make sure you're subscribed to this podcast so you never miss an episode and rate and review it so we can get it out to more people. And then I also just added a new feature at the bottom of the show notes. You'll see I put an email address. We have a new email podcast at greenleads.com. You can send us an email with feedback about the show, things you like, things you don't like, and also recommend topics that you want to hear more about in a podcast episode or even an awesome guest if you have some ideas for that we would love to hear from you i also just want to point out that i had a slight cold when i recorded this episode so you may notice that my voice is a little cloudy sorry for the audio quality i just wanted to let you guys know Now, Angie is a board-certified specialist in sports dietetics and also an exercise physiologist. She realized her passion for sports nutrition and consulting athletes one-on-one early in her career, which led her to launch a private practice, Elite Sports Nutrition. She has worked with hundreds of high school, college, professional athletes, and she's also the author of an upcoming book called Fuel Your Body, which will be released May 11th. In this episode, I decided to take a cue from some of the things that Angie shares on Instagram and really go through the myths and misconceptions that she sees a lot popping up among athletes. We also talked about popular fad diets like the keto diet, intermittent fasting, if it fits your macros, and she walked through some myths that she sees a lot and why they're myths and the reality behind them. And then we also talked a little bit about her book. I think you guys are really going to love this episode, so let's dive right in. Hi, Angie. Thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Natalie. I'm really excited to chat with you. I feel like you are one of the one of my favorite experts when it comes to sports nutrition. I know I quote you a lot in a lot of my articles because you're just so knowledgeable. (laughs) Well, you're so sweet. I always love when you email me and you've got the runner's world topics and I always get so excited. So thank you for always thinking of me for that. Oh, yeah, of course. What made you interested in sports nutrition? So I was actually in high school when my, when my interest began, I was swimming at the time and I was having all of these like stomach problems when I was, um, jumping in the water after just eating, you know, a not so nutritious meal for me. Um, usually like a Burger King junior Whopper value meal was my go-to and I would always, (laughs) but at the time, you know, like you don't really know any better you're 14 and you know, you don't really know that certain foods have an impact on performance. And I was always just feeling so sluggish and my diet was just very poor. And so I started um, just kind of researching on my own a little bit about nutrition and then had the opportunity to shadow a sports dietitian when I was 15. And that's when I really got passionate. And I saw like, oh, if I swap out you know, this burger for some pasta and some grilled chicken before my swim, like, wow, I feel so much better. And I was just like shocked at how much of an impact that one change made. And so ever since then, I just, I was really inspired. Um, again, met with that dietitian and kind of talked to him about his career path. And then I 
told my parents I want to be a sports dietitian and then kind of started from there. I, when I went to undergrad, I thought that I was going to be working in like a college setting for a university, but I had that experience and it just, I didn't really love it just because there wasn't that as much consulting like one-on-one as I'd really like. And I also really don't enjoy food service at all. So, um, that's where I kind of, uh, draw an interest to private practice instead. And your husband is a pro baseball player too, right? So you know a lot of pro athletes. Yes, yes. That came later, but yes, we, well, we actually met in college. So our freshman year of college. So I got to kind of experience like what that was like for him, you know, getting drafted and seeing the minor leagues and then working his way up to the majors. And so definitely learned a lot from having him as a spouse. Um, and that's definitely helped too, obviously with referral sources and, and whatnot, and really grow my, um, my name with like the baseball community. I love that though. Most of the people that I know who work in the sports realm, it is, it is a story like that. They were playing sports as a kid or even as an adult. And they were kind of like, I need to eat right. This is going to make a huge impact on what I'm doing. And then when they figure that out, they kind of realized that they wanted to share that with all the other athletes they knew. Exactly. It's like, how does, how is no one else talking about this? Like, this is life-changing for me. So I think that especially, I just, I just saw the impact it had on me. And then, and then I actually worked as a personal trainer first before becoming a dietitian. And so then I got to see that, that, you know, benefit of exercise and, you know, how physical activity helps with all, all areas of overall health. And so that kind of combined with the nutrition piece, that's where I I really drew, drew a passion for, for working one-on-one with people. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, the way that you relay sports nutrition information is so great because it's practical and it's also a way that people can understand the science. And I, I like so many other people love your Instagram. So I went through your Instagram to kind of come up with questions for this interview. And I almost want to do things a little different rather than just fire questions at you. I almost want to just kind of talk through some different fad diets because you really address how diets are pervasive within the sports nutrition realm and how you don't necessarily recommend many of them. So Mm -hmm. if you're cool with it, I'd like to go through some diets that are popular right now. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the first one is the ketogenic diet. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you see this pop up a lot among athletes and they probably come to you and say things like, well, my friend is doing it and I feel like I can teach my body how to burn fat as fuel. What do you say when someone says that to you? Yeah. And so honestly, I try to like present a very unbiased approach. And so when I'm meeting with an athlete, I never want them to feel, even if they come to me and they're like, I want to do this banana only diet. Like I'm going to be like, okay, <laughs> like what, what led you to, you know, I'm not going to be like, what you're crazy. Like, cause I feel like it just automatically kind of harms that relationship. So same thing with the keto diet. Awesome. All right. You know, how did you come to this conclusion? Kind of see like what, uh, what are like the results that you want to see from it? Um, you know, uh, and then I kind of present like, this is an example of like what a typical day would look like. Is that something you think you could actually do long-term? Like we, we talk about those things first and then we, and then I say, all right, well, here's what the evidence shows as far as athletic performance, which right now there's no evidence at all that a keto diet improves athletic performance or is superior to a diet that does contain carbs. So it's actually shown to be quite the opposite impairing both training intensity and duration and athletes, especially that are performing at high intensities. So I actually just recently had a post about this, like the impact 
uh, it was like six different ways that uh, low carb impact can, or low carbohydrates can have an impact on your performance. And so um, I think the one exception could be like a, an ultra runner or endurance athlete that's training at that low to moderate intensity. That may be a little bit more appropriate because that demand for carbohydrates isn't as high there. They're not at that high intensity, but even still, it's interesting. I've worked with some ultra runners that have wanted to do that fat oxidation, really be using fat as fuel, and they still supplement with carbohydrates during the event. And I think that really says something is that, well, obviously that's going to be your preferred fuel source. Um, so again, I think, I mean, it's obviously, it's not something that I would never recommend to anyone. Cause I think sure, maybe someone might benefit from it, but would I recommend it to all of my clients? Absolutely not. And I think that people, I think the reason that a lot of athletes want to try this is because they think, well, I have more fat in the body, right? Mm -hmm. So if I, if I have more fat in the body and I can train my body to utilize that fat as fuel, this is going to be more efficient for me. Right. Uh, uh-huh. They think they're like smarter than like their physiology. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, I always just say it's like a very inefficient process and exactly to, your body's not going to be able to do that. And I think that some maybe very elite athletes can maybe train their body. I don't know if there's any research on that. Is there? I mean, it's hard when I look at like high intensity interval training and high intensity, like intermittent sports, there's, there's not a lot of evidence that shows that a keto, there's no evidence really that a keto diet would improve performance. Again, the only instance where I think it may be advantageous would be at that, like lower intensity, longer duration, uh, ultra, like the endurance athlete that, that can oxidize fat easier than someone that's, you know, going to be using their, their carbohydrate, their glycogen stores so much quicker. But, um, yeah, there's, there's just not a lot of research out yet that, that shows that it is potentially a, a beneficial tool. Definitely. And to go on a little bit of a tangent here, when you start to put this kind of information out there, I'm sure there's people who come back and almost kind of yell at you on the internet oh, absolutely. and, tell, oh, and absolutely. tell you you're wrong, right? Yes. And, and that's why it's, it's hard. Cause again, I, I do want to take that unbiased approach. Cause I, I do understand that like, sure, there are people out there that honestly, like they don't like carbohydrates and they're totally content with never eating them. And that's just how they are. And that's fine. And that, and if it works for you, if you've lost 60 pounds and you run fast, than you've ever ran on keto, like that's great, but that that's not what's going to work for everyone. And if, if you can't like get that past you that like, oh, well it works for me. So it must work for everybody. Like that's, it's just, it's very harmful to think that way. And so I think just having like a, a simple conversation or like responding back, like glad, glad to hear what worked well for you or something like that. But, um, yeah, it's, I definitely do get some hate every now and then when someone doesn't like the information I share. <laughs> But I also think that's what makes a reputable healthcare provider is that they're using science-based information to to give you practical advice rather than using anecdotal um, information. Like this worked for someone else, so maybe it'll work for you. You're actually using what the science puts out there. So that's why I um, I totally, I just had to point that out. You're definitely going to get some people who are telling you that you're wrong, which yep. you're not. <laughs> um, well, thanks, Natalie. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I mean, it's happened to me, obviously. It's happened to all yeah. of us who do media stuff. Uh, what about intermittent fasting? Do you see athletes wanting to try this? And what do you think about it? 
a lot. I actually see a lot of athletes trying to, trying to, um, adapt intermittent fasting and it can be really complicated, especially for athletes that have, um, schedules that change from like day games to night games, to day games, to night games. Like it just, and when their practices are all over the place, it really, as far as like a time restricted feeding, it's just, there's no way it's advantageous because then it completely just like, doesn't take into consideration nutrient timing. So then if your window of eating is, let's say like 12 PM to 8 PM, but you have a day game that starts at 12 PM, like, how is that going to work? How are you going to be fueled before that? So definitely that's another situation where I, again, ask, you know, what are the goals that you're trying to achieve? Because most of the time it's body composition. So most of the time it's, well, I want to drop fat or something like that. So we talk about other ways that we can improve body composition that don't involve this intermittent fasting protocol. And, and the other thing that we're finding too, is in women, especially it's shown to increase, um, cortisol levels, which cortisol is a stress hormone. So for women that are trying to do this intermittent fasting and they're fasting for say, you know, either every other day, so a 24 hour fast, or maybe they're doing that, uh, 16, eight method, uh, it tends to lead to that, that higher cortisol levels, which can increase fat storage and appetite. So that's actually the opposite of what they're trying to achieve there. If their goal is fat loss. So again, there are some exceptions It, it likely will work great for some people. I think for, when you look at the research, uh, I just did a, I gave a talk on this recently at the, um, Nebraska Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. And it was interesting because a lot of the research that showed a positive benefit of intermittent fasting was on the overweight and obese adult population that had type two diabetes. So I think again, that there could be some instances where maybe it could be beneficial, but the worst thing you can do is try to take like general population studies and try to just like instill it in athletes because it doesn't work that way. It's, it's very different population. Absolutely. Sports nutrition is different than regular nutrition, right? So exactly. But it's hard because there's not a lot of studies on athletes. So that's why people kind of take it and say, well, here's a study, which doesn't translate always. Exactly. Yeah. There's very few, there's some that look on performance, like with athletes during Ramadan, which is a little different. That's like a 12, 12. Um, but again, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's very limited. Um, hopefully, hopefully because no professional athletes want to be, want to be part of these horrible fad diet studies. I don't know. (laughs) Well, it's true when you bring up professional athletes, I mean, there are some of course who, who fall into the fad diets and, and there's articles about them doing crazy things, but the majority of them, like when I think of the people who are in the top of the New York city marathon, they're just eating normal, healthy diets with lots of carbs and, and, you know, sports products and things like that. So that's really what's been proven to work. Exactly. I see it more so in the younger population, I'd say like that, you know, college entering that professional level to the first time. And I'm sure, I mean, there's a lot of pressure and I think they're trying to just like do everything at once. And, um, but yeah, the more established professional athlete they're they're going to be past all of this by then. Um, but yeah. What do you think about counting macros? I have a lot of people who come to me and say, oh, a trainer told me I should count macros or so-and-so said I should count macros and it just seems so overwhelming. And I'm always like, yeah, it is overwhelming. (laughs) It's it's a lot. It's like a puzzle you have to figure out every day. I can't imagine. I would be so exhausted. Like I, I truly don't know how people have the time to go through that every single day, but I do, I think it works for some people, um, 
providing kind of like structure and eating specific amounts of each macronutrient. And I think it's, it's helpful to like better understand portion sizes and the makeup of meals. But for me personally, that's what I work on with my athletes is I educate on portion sizes, not like, Oh, this meal has X number of this X number of this X, because that's just overwhelming. And it's, they're not really going to like actually use that information. Whereas if they see like, Oh, okay, I have one cup of rice on my plate and I have six ounces of chicken or tofu on my plate, like then they can like recognize that a little bit easier versus like the exact breakdown of macronutrients. I think in general, the reason people lose weight on it is because instead of that calorie restriction, the macronutrients have been given within a calorie restriction. So it's basically just instead of counting your calories, you're counting your macros. And I think for some people, again, it could be advantageous because if people are just solely counting calories, they may not be eating enough, say carbohydrates or fats or protein, or they may be eating too much of one or the other. So I think it helps a little bit more with the distribution, but I do think it can become extremely, um, tedious, obsessive, uh, disordered. So I, I typically don't recommend it in my practice. Yeah. I think as long as you don't have a history of disordered eating, it's not a terrible thing to track your right. calories for two or three days to kind of see where you're landing. I, I, I say this a lot with the plant-based community because a lot of times they don't understand protein or something and don't know where it's coming from and have no idea how much they're eating in a day. And I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. maybe we track it for two days just to kind of get a sense, but mm -hmm. I don't, I can't imagine doing it long-term and seeing uh, it just, it just sounds like it's a lot of work. <laughs> no, I can, I completely agree. And it doesn't even really account for like the food quality because it's not even really accounting for the micronutrients. So you could be meeting your macronutrient goals, but eating, you know, very low nutrient density foods that aren't rich in a lot of vitamins and minerals that you're going to be lacking in your diet. So I think rather, you know, educating on portion awareness. And like you said, maybe a couple times a month, you, you know, write down and get a good idea of what you're eating. I think that's a very useful tool, but to do it every single day, that's just going to start creating some pretty, pretty, um, strict habits. That's true. And it's not like I know the numbers off the top of my head, but I know nuts are high in fat and bacon is high in fat. So <laughs> you could, <Yeah. laughs> I mean, then that's kind of, you know, those things, that's how what happens on a macro diet is like, oh, I got 20 grams of fat left today. What yes. am I going to eat? <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And like, look at the different nutrients in those foods. Like it's, it's just night and day different. So you're exactly right. So are there, I mean, we kind of talked about diets that we see popping up, but do you see common sports nutrition myths that pop up a lot among athletes that you get asked about a lot? Common sports nutrition myths. Um, gosh, I mean, there are so many, and I actually, in my book, which I know will eventually talk about, I'm sure um, I have a, a full two pages that kind of goes over some different myths and misconceptions in sports nutrition. So yeah, I think that might be and interesting can, for people to read. Uh, but I can I, stop you because I pulled some of them out. Oh, well, that's perfect. <laughs> I was going to, and I don't even know if this one's in there or not, but the one that immediately came to my head was that like lean or low, lower body fat always equals an improvement in performance, which obviously isn't the case, but that's a very common myth is like, oh, well, if I cut my body fat, then that'll automatically lead to an improvement in performance. But 
my questions are always, you know, how did they reduce their body fat? Were they in a huge deficit that led them to also lose lean mass? And what's their training schedule like? Are they meeting their energy needs for training or are they going to be at a really high risk of low energy availability? And just kind of like educating that leanness doesn't always translate to performance. I see athletes at the professional level with all different kinds of body compositions. Um, so I think that one, that one is definitely one of the most common. Yes. I actually did a podcast with Maddie Om, who is a professional runner and also a dietitian. And you were saying so many of the things that she said, which we That's talked awesome. a lot. Yeah. We talked a lot about race weight and, uh, how yes. a lot of runners try to get to race weight because they think if they are leaner, they will be faster. And that is not necessarily the case. Cause a lot of times that means you're just under fueled. Right. And then like, what about the super compensation of carb loading before a marathon or an ultra where now you're like at such a low weight, usually you're a little bit higher up from the, the additional glycogen. So yeah, that's, it's, it's scary. It's definitely prevalent in endurance sports with that. Um, I see it in cycling a lot too. Um, I'd say another really common trend is, um, I just thought of it, uh, bulletproof coffee. I'm still seeing that with athletes where they're adding like the butter or the MCT into their morning coffee. And that's definitely still a big, uh, a big trend and, and myth that I'm seeing that the MCT will be good for like cognitive performance before a game or before an event. Oh my gosh. I don't know if I've ever heard that before. I just thought oh, that yeah. was kind of like a, a high fat keto thing. No, no, there are so many professional athletes that are just dumping MCT oil into their coffee because they think it's going to have that, that cognitive benefit of, of, on, on performance, but obviously there's no, there's no evidence there. <laughs> it's so funny. How do these things get started where there's no evidence, but it's just, I think it's social media really that it 100%. just spreads. Yeah. Yes. Someone writes a book about it or, or a documentary or other, yeah. Other teammates hear, hear it from someone else who knows. And your social media, you do a lot of myth busting. So I'm going to go through a few that I found in your book and a few that you had on social media. One of the myths that you said is that your body can only absorb 20 to 30 grams of protein per meal. I'm not going to lie. I actually thought that was true. <laughs> but then when I was reading what you wrote, can you clarify? Yeah. So, and it's kind of a complicated, it's complicated myth because your, when you say only 20 to 30 grams, I'll give you an example because body size and gender, they all play a huge role and training regimen too, all play a huge role in the total amount of protein needs per day. So like if you have a larger athlete, let's say like 230, 240 pounds, they're going to need, and if, and if you estimate maybe like 2.2, we'll just make it easy. And we'll say 2.2 grams per kilogram. Cause that's on the higher end. So that would be a gram per pound to make my math easy. Um, so that's, you know, 230 grams of, of protein. And so if you divide that up, I mean, they would have to eat like eight or nine times consistently throughout the day. If, if their body is, you know, only able to absorb that 20 or 30, that was that was claimed to be true. But what we're finding is that your body can actually absorb a little bit more based on your body size. So that absorbing 20 to 30 grams, that might be realistic for like a 120 pound runner, for example. Um, but for someone with a larger body, um, someone with a larger training regimen who needs higher protein intakes, 
it's not to say that that protein is necessarily just wasted. It's actually used for other things beyond just muscle protein synthesis. So it might be used for like improving their bone health or immune function or creating hormones or enzymes. And either way, it's also additional calories as well to make up for their high training demand. So instead of that whole, like, Oh, just aim to eat 20 to 30 grams per meal, we're trying to, um, educate athletes on how many grams per kilogram body weight per day. So maybe closer to, let's say like 1.6 to 2.2. So then they can take their weight in kilograms and get a good estimate there. And then they can break it up based on how many meals they're able to actually eat per day. Cause a lot of people can't eat eight or nine times a day. So if they can eat three or four, or maybe even five, then just trying to distribute it as evenly as they can, um, rather than having say a hundred grams here and 10 grams there. I think that that myth came up because we were trying, we meaning dietitians were trying to stop people from just downing 50 grams of protein in a protein shake after a workout or something like that. <laughs> Cause that's oh, not totally. always the, mo the most efficient way to get protein in, but like what you said makes a lot of sense. If someone is 230, 250, of course they're going to have, they're going to absorb more than 30 grams of protein at a meal. Oh, totally. And I do definitely have to debunk that myth too, where it's like more protein is always better. That's not always the case either. And if you are putting like eight scoops of protein powder into your smoothie all at once thinking that's going to like maximize your strength gains. Well, that's not necessarily the case either. It's, it's going to be additional calories, which will help you with weight gain if that is your goal, but it's not necessarily, you know, strictly going to go to your lean muscle mass, the more protein about, you use. What about coconut water is more hydrating than a sports drink? Uh, yeah, that one is tricky. And I know, and it frustrates me that body armor is so low in sodium. I just, I don't understand it, but, uh, so basically body armor is the first one to come to mind. Cause I know that one's become really popular and, um, the base is coconut water, which I think is as great. I think coconut water for athletes is fantastic because it's got the potassium, it's got the carbohydrates, but it's obviously lacking the one thing that you lose most in your sweat, which is sodium. So, um, I feel like if you're able to make your own homemade sports drink using coconut water and just basically adding in your salt to it, or you could use like salt licks or salt tabs, whatever you find most convenient, but just making sure that you are supplementing with the salt because otherwise you're not getting it from just coconut water alone. Yeah. I actually wrote an article about sports drinks and I went through all the different varieties out there, including electrolyte tablets and it's funny because I always say sports drinks were created with a specific formula in mind. They have a certain amount of carbs, a certain amount of sodium, a certain amount of potassium. And now they're really veering off of that. And the ones that don't have any sodium, it doesn't make a lot of sense. What's the point yes. of drinking a sports drink? Yeah. Yeah. So, it's got, it's, it's basically like a vitamin water. Yeah. You're exactly right. It's like, Oh, like, well, it's got 200% of your vitamin C, like, okay, how is that going to help me when I'm cramping, you know, in the middle of my run? Like, so yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah. I think it's just because they become more for the everyday person than the mm -hmm. athlete, but for the actual athletes who are marathon training or working out in the heat or doing whatever, you actually need to have that sodium in there. Absolutely. Same thing with all the like Gatorade zero and all the zero calorie, zero sugar sports drinks. It's just kind of like an oxymoron because obviously your body needs those carbohydrates and in, in the sports drink. 
Totally. How about this one? If you're craving a certain food, your body actually needs those nutrients. That's a myth you have on your social media, I believe. Yeah. So, and this was actually, it can be true at times, but cravings aren't always physiological. So uh, what research finds is that they also arise from a psychological response. And so cravings especially are tied very closely to like these memory areas in your brain. And so thinking of either like a positive memory that you have from eating that food or just a positive moment or basically that reward. Um, There's a great book. uh, It's called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. And it goes over the like um, the habit loop and it goes over the cue, uh, the, or the routine, the cue and the, um, reward and cravings kind of can go into this too. It almost becomes more of a habit for some people. And they might think like, like, for example, if you're craving chocolate, it's not necessarily that your body is low in magnesium. I mean, it could be, but it's not always the case. And I think some people, they get a little tied up in, in that. And they might think like, oh, well, I must be low in magnesium. I better eat chocolate. Like it, it's, it's a little more tricky than that. And, and cravings can definitely still be more psychological, especially if that food is, you know, maybe high in sugar. So it's rewarding to the brain, or maybe it's rich in fat. So again, it's, it's rewarding to the brain. Um, but yeah, so kind of answering your question, I think it, it's sometimes true, but not always. Yeah, I actually, I've heard from a lot of plant-based people when they go plant-based, sometimes they're craving sugar and they're not sure why. And uh, we, I did a podcast on sugar and we talked a lot about sometimes when you're not eating enough protein, you get sugar craving. So it, it could be something completely unrelated. And another example I have, which is not sugar related, is I, I've talked a lot about, uh, I have iron, I've dealt with iron deficiency. And one of the ways that I knew that I was deficient was that I was chewing on ice Uh, and I was actually craving the ice. I would like sit on the subway on the way home and think about eating ice rather than think about eating food, which is, uh, called Pika. And that's craving in like not food products, which, so that has nothing to do with, I wasn't craving meat. I was actually craving ice. So yeah, just two examples there. Yeah. That's like a definite sign of iron deficiency. That's crazy. That would like yeah. hurt my teeth. <laughs> it's funny. Cause if I did it now, which I I've gotten my levels back up to normal, it it's terrible. You have ice in your mouth and it's cold and you don't like yeah. it. Yeah. But during the time it just, it tastes amazing. You're like, this is yeah. great. I love this. <laughs> yeah. That's such a, that's such a good, good point to bring up and great point about the like protein and sugar connection too. Yeah, definitely. Okay. One more, uh, endurance athletes have lower protein needs than strength athletes. Yeah. So that's another myth. And you know, this, that's actually something that I learned like in, in college. And I, it was always like, you know, if you're an endurance athlete, only eat this many grams. If you're a strength training athlete, eat this many grams. And it was always kind of confusing to me because it was kind of like, okay, what about these people that are in the middle or, um, you know, that aren't really classified as one or the other. And, it was always just very confusing. And then this, this position stand came out. I'm I'm assuming it was, it was probably from the JISSN that was very specific on this topic. And it talked about how endurance athletes actually have, um, much higher protein needs than we once thought. And if they eat 
I think it was like less than 1.6 grams per kilogram, um, then that can lead to negative nitrogen balance. So especially if they have those very high training demands, because some endurance athletes, I mean, running 80, 90, hundred mile weeks, like those are very high training demands. And that prolonged exercise can result in, um, muscle damage and, um, can obviously lead to injury. So it's definitely a myth. And I, and I hope that runners are, you know, aware of their protein needs a little bit more now, obviously carbohydrate needs are increased too, which I think that might be part of it too. They may have assumed like, Oh, well, I'll increase my carbs to make up for my training, but maybe they didn't really change their protein much, or maybe they even decreased their protein in the process, uh, to make up for the additional carbs, but obviously their, their whole entire energy needs are increased too. So, um, that also includes protein. Yeah. And I also think, Obviously, we're talking about people who are training uh, either collegiate in college or professionally, but for everyday athletes, say you're running 20, 30 miles a week, mm-hmm. it's still important to have protein and it's still important to strength train and it's still important to feed that protein. It's oh, not just absolutely. All about the carbs. Absolutely. Yes. So it's, uh, it's definitely, I mean, I probably say this on every single podcast, but everything comes down to a balanced diet. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Speaking about diets, let's talk about your book. So you just wrote a book, which is coming out soon. It's called Fuel Your Body. What was it like to write and what's in there? What can people find in there? Yes. Oh my gosh. Well, it's it's been a long time coming and I know I've talked to you about this already, but um, it really, the decision came down directly from my athletes. So meeting with my clients and meeting with athletes and and them always coming to me asking for a book recommendation that um, really covered the, the nutrition basics of athletic performance and recovery, but they also wanted, you know, recipes or a cookbook that was geared specifically to athletes. So what I did was I basically encompassed everything in one. So it's not, it's not like a textbook and I know you have your copy now already, but it's not like a textbook where, you know, it's, it's for the dietitian that wants to expand their knowledge on sports nutrition. It's, it's not like that. It's not an academic book. It's, it's more so for the athlete that wants to expand their knowledge knowledge on the basics and and get a really good understanding of the pre, the during, the post, the recovery, the um, anti-inflammatory foods, the benefit of, I talk a lot about plant-based, not the entire book is plant-based. It's about maybe 75% plant-based, but I talk a lot about the benefits of eating more plants. And there's even a a vegan vegetarian meal plan and a vegan vegetarian grocery list for athletes. Um, There are still some poultry and fish recipes throughout the book too, but we go over performance nutrition and supplements and, and obviously, um, the importance of implementing what I call nourishment over numbers, which kind of goes back to what we were talking about with the whole like macro counting thing and how I don't recommend they count their macros. Uh, so we talk a lot more about like, how is the food nourishing you both physically and emotionally and kind of focusing more on the nourishment factor versus just the calories and the grams of carbs, protein, fat, and so on. I think it's so important to put something like this out there because it's, there's a lot of everyday athletes and that's why I do what I do and why you do what you do, who don't necessarily have sports nutrition knowledge because it's not something that we're really taught that much about. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of, you have to learn it as you go. Uh, Maybe if you were a high school or a collegiate athlete, you worked with a dietitian, but if someone decides to pick up you know, marathon running later in life, they don't necessarily know about fueling and recovery. And that's why something like this is so awesome because it gives you that information, but then it also just gives you the meals you can make that will make oh, you Oh, absolutely. Good. And not everybody has access or the funds to 
their own sports dietitian. I get it. It can be really expensive to meet one-on-one with people. And so that really allows them to have that individualized attention a little bit on their own and kind of reading, okay, well, um, you know, I could try this for me or I could try that and I could try these strategies. And so it kind of just, it teaches them and gives them the tools in a very simple and, and easy to understand way. Well, the book is called Fuel Your Body. And when does it come out? Um, in the next couple of weeks, very soon. Awesome. I'm excited for everyone to see it. It's really, really great. And everyone should go follow Angie on Instagram because she is awesome there. Where can people find more from you? What's your handle on your website? Uh, my handle is Elite Nutrition. That's E-L-E-A-T Nutrition. And that's basically where I am on everything. Instagram is where I spend the most time. Twitter, I'm pretty horrible at. Um, and same with Facebook. I basically just copy everything over from Instagram to those two. <laughs> Are you doing TikTok? <laughs> no, I okay. tried. I downloaded it and I tried one video and it took me like an hour and a half. And I was like, I'm never doing this again. So <laughs> same. Here. Are you on TikTok? I just, no, I decided to do a podcast instead of TikTok. So that's smart. That's very smart. Yes. Yeah. No, I think it, uh, I feel like if I do download it, then I'll spend like an hour just watching random people dance to things. Oh, and, exactly. Uh, it's like a time yeah. suck. A hundred percent. Yeah, I'm sure it's very entertaining, but I know not right now. Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, thanks so much, Angie. This is really, really awesome and interesting. And I'm sure everyone's going to love this episode. Thank you so much for having me, Natalie. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Natalie Rizzo. And if you want to learn more from me, follow me on social media at Greenleats or visit my website at greenleats.com.